there, podcast listeners. Caitlin here. So this is a recording that we've been sitting on for a little bit. It's our episode that we recorded with Rebecca Ross, and unfortunately we had a technical difficulty as we were recording, and we really hope that you will be willing to deal with some of the interesting things that came about as a result. There's some interesting um, Darth Vader breathing and some tinny audio, but the information itself we really wanted to share with you because it's really, really helpful. I learned a whole lot when we were talking to her. And she has a lot of really great things to say about developing your characters and layering them and how that relates to your plot. So I hope you'll listen. Rebecca was so patient with us and done really amazing. And she also is a fabulous writer. You should absolutely go check out her books. Now here's the show. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Aaliyah, and if I was a pizza topping or layer, I would be pineapple because I'm sweet, but occasionally inappropriate. <laughs> oh, I don't think we said what order we were we going. Talk about who was going next. Hello everyone, <laughs> I'm Cameron. And if I was a pizza topping, I would be cheese because I'm very cheesy. <laughs> Um, hi, I'm Kristen, and if I was a pizza topping, I would be pepperoni because I add just the right amount of spice to life. I'm Caitlin, and if I were a pizza topping, I would be bacon because bacon goes with everything. I disagree, but that's okay. Oh, heretic. <laughs> I don't even know. I don't think I go with everything either. It just seems like if you want to be something, you might as well be bacon. Yeah, that's true. And I'm Rebecca. And if I was a pizza layer, I'm going to have to be the same as Cameron. I'd be cheese because I'm loyal, dependable, and I get along with everyone else. So. Amen. That's such a good answer. Okay, a big welcome to our special guest today, Rebecca J. Ross, author of The Queen's Rising, The Queen's Resistance, and the forthcoming Sisters of Sword and Song. Tell us about your books, Becca. Yeah, thank you guys so much for having me again. Um, so my, my debut is The Queen's Rising. It came out in 2018. If you like adventure, political intrigue, slow-burning romance, sisterhood, you'd probably like it. My second book was The Queen's Resistance that came out uh, last year. It's the sequel. Um, my next book is coming out in June, and it is titled Sisters of Sword and Song. It's about two sisters, Halcyon and Evadne. When Halcyon commits a crime and receives a heavy sentence for it, Evadne decides to take a portion of the punishment, but she soon learns that there's far more happening than what she once believed and that Halcyon is involved in a dangerous secret. And it is a young adult standalone fantasy inspired by ancient Greece. And Ooh. I just want to say I got an advanced copy of that book and I read it uh, last week and it's incredible. So I highly recommend it. Everyone go buy it. It's beautiful. It has sisters. It has everything I wanted in the book. So. Yay. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Well, today we want to discuss how to layer characters into your story. So what type of layering do we mean by this? Yes. So I don't know if you guys have seen Shrek. Um <laughs> Are we about to talk about onions? You bet we are. <laughs> so every time I like I see that scene, so basically if you haven't seen Shrek, Shrek is an ogre and his little sidekick is Donkey and they're walking through a cornfield and Donkey is trying, you know, he wants to be really good friends with Shrek and Shrek just doesn't really want to be friends. But, so Shrek's trying to explain what ogres are like and he's like, ogres have layers and Donkey's like, oh, like a cake. 
and the shark's like, no, like we have layers, like an onion, and he like opens this onion up and he has all these layers. And every time I think about, you know, when I think about that, I think about like how characters, when you're making characters in a book, like, you know, to make them feel real, they need to have layers. And so kind of jumping into talking about characters, one of the best pieces of advice I have ever heard from another author, Holly Black, who I love, she one time said something, (laughs) she said um, when she is building a character, she gives them something to fear, she gives them something to need, she gives them something to want, and gives them something to hide. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is like so clever. Um, And just looking at each one of those as a layer that you can build in your character. And of course, like the, the something that they want is kind of like the core of your character, because that's you know, every story, your character has to want something to propel it forward. So that's like one piece of advice. Again, Holly Black, who's brilliant, that I just, I've all, whenever I heard it said that, I was like, man, it stuck with me. And I've definitely used it in my own character building. Um, another thing that I really like to use, and I don't know if you guys have heard of the Enneagram test. I hadn't before our last podcast. <laughs> the last time we tried to do this. <laughs> I still haven't. Please continue. Okay. Enneagram, it's, it's like a personality test, and it's become very popular lately. Um, the Enneagram test, they basically have nine different personality types. So you take this test to answer questions, and it puts you as like one of the types, and then they also give you a wing. So basically, like, you, get, you get a set of the types, and there's nine types. So number one is the reformer, number two is the helper, number three is the achiever, number four is the individualist, number five is the investigator, number six is the loyalist, number seven is the enthusiast, number eight is the challenger, and number nine is the peacemaker. So if you take this test, you'll hear people be like, oh, I'm a six, what are you? Like, oh, I'm a, I'm a three. And then you like instantly kind of know like what these people are like, so... Um, a lot of times when I am like struggling to kind of know what my characters are like, because usually it's like characters, like the first thing I see when I start working on a project and, you know, my plot comes later. So I was like, I really want to know my characters before I get started. So the, one of my most, the book, a book I wrote last year, my main character was a four. So the individualist, this is the sensitive, withdrawn type, expressive, dramatic, self-absorbed and temperamental. So I am looking at the Enneagram Institute website, and it's just literally enneagraminstitute.com, and they have like these long profiles on each type. So I'm going to click on number four, and they have like type four and brief. It's like fours are self-aware, sensitive, reserved, they're emotionally honest, creative, and personal, but can also be moody and self-conscious. Um, and it goes on and on and on. But the thing that I love about this website um, is that they basically list like basic fear of a four, that they have no identity or personal significance basic desire to find themselves and their significance, to create an identity. Um, it even has lists of like what their key motivations are. Um, and it even kind of, and then like further down, they have like overviews. So um, it talks about like when the fours are healthy, like, you know, how they look at the world or how they, they handle conflict. And so I literally was like, oh my gosh, like what, it gives me so many good ideas. Like again, when I'm trying to build a very realistic character about, um, again, going back to these layers, what things they're afraid of, things that they need, things that they want, things that they, that they want to hide. I just love being, I feel like it's just like something I can just like, you know, go into the, the store and just like pick up all the stuff off the shelf. Like, oh yeah, I'll use that, I'll use that, I'll use that. But it's just like a really good, 
just like breakdown of different types of people, um, the things that motivate them. And I just love it. So that's something, and I actually got this idea from another friend, an author friend, Isabel. She, like, one time we were switching chapters, and uh, we were talking about her main character. And she's like, my character is a type 8, and she's a challenger. And I was like, oh, so you actually, like, you know, you, you give your character the Enneagram test. And she's like, yeah, it helps me. And so ever since she said that, I was like, oh, I'm going to do that too. And it has been, like, very helpful. So I highly encourage all of y'all to go <laughs> figure out what your type is. It's really fun. And again, you'll you'll run across other people who have taken this test and they'll be like, what number are you? And Wait, so when you took the test, did you feel like it was really accurate summation of who and what you are? Yes, yes, absolutely. And so I, I'm a four too. So like my main character, you know, of my, my most recent book is also a four. So, but yeah, I go and like... I go and look and read this, like, yep, that's me, that's me, that's me. And they even give you examples of famous people. So, like, um, like for a type four, again, like, Angelina Jolie is a type four. Like, Kate Winslet's a type four. Anne Rice is a type four. Tennessee Williams. Like, I don't even know how they know, like, all these people who are, like, famous people are type fours. But it's kind of cool to be able to see famous people, like, what their types are, too. But, yeah, definitely you guys should go every, anytime you have fair moment go see what your type is um, and then apply it to your craft and your building character I, I feel like this is such a good it's a good jumping off point if you're a planner and it's a really good revision point if you are like a Panther. A discovery writer yeah a pantser I, I feel like I start more in like the Harry Potter house area where I'm like, this person generally is brave and likes to protect people, so they must be a Gryffindor. But, or this person has their own self-interest at heart, and so they must be a Slytherin. But I feel like if you're really going to get into a character and, like, really think about what their specific fears are going to be, like, this is a great way to go and, and, and fix things after you've already started it. I feel like I'm more of a pantser when it comes to characters, and so going back and revising, I'm like, why is this not consistent? So... It sounds like it'd be really helpful for me anyway to be like, they wouldn't act like this because they're number four. Well, and it's so nice to have those built in, the fear, the wants, the need and the hide. Like, if you have a general idea of what those are going in, I feel like it's probably easier to get to a specific thing than if you're just kind of pushing around in the dark, which is what I tend to do when I make characters. Well, and also, as I mean, I think our topic for this it was originally like character and how it relates to plot and if you know those things about your character then a plot automatically follows because if your character is terrified of I don't know getting into a fight then that would be a really boring story um your character was really (laughs) maybe not it wouldn't be if they're a character that's constantly being invited to fight um but if if you know what your character is most afraid of you know exactly what situation to put them into that would be the worst or the thing they'd be best at and then like taking that away from them i don't know so on that line of thought then if you use a personality test like this one to kind of as a starting point a jump off point for your character what things can you do throughout the plot to continue adding layers? Because characters change a lot over their stories. Oh, yes, and as, as they should for the emotional uh, narrative. And this is something that I didn't talk about last time because I think I got like on a rabbit trail. But I wanted to talk about a little bit about how I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I'm a panther too. So... Yeah, I typically discovery right as I go. So this is something that really helps me when I go back to revising. But 
I like to follow this three-act structure um, when it comes to plot. So, and this is just one way to think about a story, so don't feel limited by it. But I was thinking, like, a lot of storytelling technique um, uses the three acts, and I think it's, there's just a lot of power and resonance in the number three. Think about, like, Goldilocks and the Three Bears. Think about three princesses are always featured in fairy tales or the three challenges in mythology. So I wanted to talk real quick about, like, the three-act structure and how you can, how those character layers can be brought into that plot. So with Act 1, you're going to have the setup, which is your exposition, your inciting incident, plot point number one. Act 2, you're going to have your confrontation, your rising action, your midpoint, plot point number two. And your Act 3, you're going to have your resolution, your pre-climax, your climax, and then your resolution. And so going, going back to Act 1, which is your setup, so your exposition is going to set the stage. And then you're going to have your inciting incident, which is the catalyst. Uh, and this is like the break in the pattern. This is what kind of sets the story, gets the story moving. And so when I think about the inciting incident, I always think about, again, going back to what that core layer is of your characters. What do they want? Um, and so that is a layer, that's like kind of where you need to start because the desire of your character is going to drive your story forward. So you want to set up your goals and motivations here too. And so sometimes like I'll have a read, you know, inspiring author be like, things just aren't like moving it forward in my story. I don't know what's wrong. And it's like, well, go back to what your character wants. Is that something clearly defined? Like if not, then you might just need to really flesh that out. Um, and that's going to help move your character forward. And so again, Make sure that your core layer is there in that inciting incident. And then your plot point number one is when your character must engage. Um, it's going to further launch your main character into the heart of the story, so they, have, they typically have to make a decision here, um, which leads to your second act of the confrontation. Uh, the rising action is when the main character's pursuit of what they want begins. And here's where like all those obstacles come into play. So me personally, I like to really play up the character layers of what they fear and what they are hiding. And of course, you don't have to have a character with a secret every single time, but I do think something to hide makes it really compelling. So it's like, oh, when is the other character going to find out about this? Like, you know, this built in tension. And of course, characters being afraid of something um, can also be a big motivator. And, you know, fear and secrets kind of go hand in hand, I think, and it really sparks tension. You can even use this time to really build some foreshadowing in your story. Which leads us to the midpoint of your book, which is exactly how it sounds, kind of the midway point. Um, and I always think it's important to kind of return and touch base with what your main character originally wanted. Kind of, again, reminding the reader, like, this is what, you know, my character wants. But of course your character is beginning to change at this point because they've already been through several obstacles. But your stakes should be rising. Plot point number two is, again, you know, your, your main character is facing another decision or they might be reflecting on what they've come through or what is to come so it's kind of like this pivoting point into your third act which is when your resolution happens so you have your pre-climax which is you know if you have an antagonist there's going to be some sort of clash um, and you're setting the stage for the final climax and then of course with the climax which is your overarching conflict everything you've been building towards and so with this character layer um, I like to think of it as you know, really bringing out what your character needs and what they now want, because obviously your character is not going to be the same as they were at the very beginning. Because that'd be really, you know, a stale story. <laughs> the character never changed um, yeah. what they wanted. 
And a lot of times, I just feel like it's really neat to play against, like, what a character realizes they need versus what they originally wanted and now what they now want. Like, there's just a lot of things you can play up in with that climax. So, and again, talking about, like, the emotional narrative, to have, to feel that, that it feels fulfilled, you know, that even though your character has changed, that they aren't the same as they were before. And then, of course, we have the resolution where their goal has been achieved or redefined, and it's really important to have that fulfillment. Um, anything you promise the reader needs to be answered to have, so the reader can have that emotional satisfaction, the cor- unless, of course, you're doing a cliffhanger or you have a series, but just talking about this being like a full, complete story, this is where you would tie up your loose ends. So that was kind of like a long answer, but that's just some one of the ways that like I kind of look at plot and like how again I like I tend to favor more character driven stories, but just the way that like your character can like influence the plot or how they change throughout you know the plot. So yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone have any final thoughts before we move on to the next part of our podcast? Okay. Then we'll go ahead and move on to the part of the podcast where we model a writing group and critique an audience submission. Quick review, we try to be non-prescriptive, but if you'd like to check out the text of the submission and see all of our notes, check on our website, litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines there. So, a summary of this week's submission. A boy accidentally stows away on a pirate ship and finds himself face-to-face with a giant Kelpie that wants to smash the boat to pieces. What are some things that we liked? I remember, well, lately we've been jumping in really fast. I would love to hear what Rebecca has to say first. <laughs> we can add to it. <laughs> so I really loved the, the first line. I was instantly intrigued by it. And I love that there is kind of this mystery right off the bat um, cause I was like, why is he in a barrel? Um, so with each sentence, um, the writer was really drawing me in and I was having more questions. And I think that is, you know, sometimes I think people are tempted to like start off with like action, like right in chapter one. And sometimes like action, you know, readers don't have any context for it, but mystery will always work in suspense because a reader's going to want to know, okay, wait, what's going on? And instead of just having like some battle or something. So I loved just kind of the suspense, how it drew me in. I also really loved the line, the ocean was always taking things that didn't belong to it, destroying things that it shouldn't reach and kidnapping too many people he loved. I thought that was really beautiful. I agree. There were some really lovely descriptions of the sea scattered throughout. One I liked was the turquoise sea sparkled against the sun. Um, And I just thought that the descriptions throughout the whole piece were so tangible, especially about the characters describing their facial features, how they walked and things. I really enjoyed that. I really liked the mystery of, um, so they're on a ship in the middle of the ocean, and at one point someone's like, horses in a certain direction. And the moment that it said horses, I was like, completely sold. I I was ready to find out more about why there are horses in the middle of the ocean. I really liked the emotional current flowing through the entire thing. Um, Pun intended. Pun intended. (laughs) I feel like I I understood um, the vast majority of the time what the character was feeling and why they were feeling it and, you know, natural concerns that would arise from that. So I thought that was pretty good. I liked the idea of having a main character that struggles with anxiety. It's kind of cool to see real issues put into a fantasy landscape. I feel like putting taking something out of context of the world 
that we live in and putting it into a different world makes it easier for people to consume it and like think about it objectively. And so I liked that it was a thing there. I think we have some other things we want to talk about around that, but I liked the idea of that in a main character. I also really liked that opening line, and I wanted to read it just so you guys can hear it if you don't go and read the submission. It's, Ryan Hurt had decided from a young age that the thing he hated most in the world was the ocean. Well, second to himself, of course, which is so great. It tells me so much about him, and it makes me wonder both about the ocean and what it did to him and why he hates himself so much. So just like Rebecca was saying, it's just perfect. There's another little line that I also really liked. I just like the progression of the sentences here where it says he needed water and to walk and probably to hurl. And I thought it was a nice way to get some humor in there, but also to kind of pull along the reader with wanting to find out which each next sentence would be. All right, let's go ahead and move on to some things that might need a second look. And I can lead off here because I think I was the one with the note on um, the main character's anxiety. I also appreciated seeing a character in a fantasy world deal with those issues. But I think sometimes the way it was presented to me felt a little heavy-handed. For instance, um, at one point, the narrator or the main character talks about doing some, not doing something like any sane and normal person without anxiety would have done. But in that case, I felt like anyone would have done the same thing he had done with or without anxiety. So it made me wonder. It made me wonder what perspective he was coming to his anxiety from, if it was medically diagnosed or if it was just something he um, had heard about. And I think another issue I had with it is it being referred to as specifically as anxiety. And um, there are a couple other terms. I'm trying to remember. There are a couple other terms thrown around with that that made it sound like uh, mental health science in the world had progressed a lot farther than I would imagine um, it would have in a fantasy world that was still using ships with barrels and things like that. Which, I mean, it's it's possible that it had. And so I would be okay waiting to see markers in there that show that mental health science has moved forward enough to say that it's anxiety and I have methods of coping with it. Because that's been something that's been relatively recent in our society. So, I mean, I could see it being there, but unless it's very much put forward and shown to us, it would be hard to take in a, in a kind of... Not medieval, but like in a pirate landscape. It seems kind of out of place. <laughs> so so personally, I'm going to push back a little bit. Personally, I didn't mind that aspect. I mean, we're, we're clearly not, you know, on terra firma, our Earth, given that there's a giant skeletal water seal horse attacking ships. So hey, there are I plenty personally... of those here. <laughs> so I'm, personally, I'm okay to wait for more, but also in the vein that Maybe I missed something. I don't remember seeing anything too medically sounding besides anxiety, but anxiety had a meaning before it became a medical diagnosis. So I'm okay if that just happens to be the word he uses to describe it, just just because it happens to be the word that ended up being a medical diagnosis 300 years later. I felt the same way as Cameron. I, I mean, if I'm willing to suspend my disbelief for a giant seahorse, I, anxiety is much easier for me to suspend my disbelief for. <laughs> And kind of similarly with the whole, you know, the not doing what a normal person would do. I, In my mind, I went straight to the, the initial moment when he was in a barrel and he realized he wasn't where he was supposed to be. I feel like most people would have said, hey, I'm sorry I'm on your ship. Let me leave now instead of hiding out for an extended period of time before. Like, like once you're out at sea, sure, I get the inclination to hide, but I don't know. 
I don't know, maybe we can argue cognitive normal behavior more extensively at a later date, but... Whatever that means, normal behavior. Yeah. <laughs> um, I will say, however, that I did feel pretty ungrounded in terms of age of sales setting, because I feel like with the details on the page, this could be anywhere from 15th century to 19th century, and that is a large window. I think, depending on what kind of fantasy this is, that might not bother me. Um, you guys can argue with me if you want, but if this is like a very plot-focused book, I'm not sure. Well, I mean, I guess we'll get more information. Unless we're on the pirate ship for an extended period of time, like through the whole book, we'll probably see more of what time period we're in when we hit land. But it was also kind of, I felt like there was a lack of concrete details that could have helped establish that like there's one part where it says he stumbles across against the closest mast and i just felt like that was weird wording given that unless this is an absolutely ginormous ship it doesn't have more than three masts and so it should be really obvious like this is you know this is the aft mast or the mizzen or the four and and it, it was just like little little details that would take like a word to add that i feel like would ground the scene a lot more i think it depends on how much the the character knows about ships but on that note, and how big the ship is, I had that question as well. Not only because I wasn't sure about how the big the ship physically was, but Ryan is not super fussed about being found in the hold. Because, I mean, at first he's hiding and he seems... Yeah, he's very, he's very concerned. And then all of a sudden he decides to leave. Yeah, and then when the guy actually comes and finds him, he's like, hey, here's a weapon. Like, I just... Yeah. <laughs> I, I was a little bit confused about that because if it's a really huge boat with like passengers where the, the crew doesn't know everybody, I could see that, but oh. it doesn't seem like that kind of ship. But we know it's not that size of ship because it says that when he goes on the, when he goes like above on the deck, he says that there are more men that he had thought there would be initially. And then he says that he only sees 20. And if 20 is more than he oh, thought, then yeah, it's got to be weird. a very small ship. And so my problem was like, why was why why did the sailor who gave him the weapon not recognize him? Like yeah, twenties twenties a weird number. You could easily have a couple hundred people on a mid-sized sailing ship. So yeah, so I guess I I just felt like I was missing some sense of what the crew members' interactions were with each other. Like especially if there's only twenty, especially if there's only twenty people on board. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> which i thought was kind of odd we're fighting this titan seahorse here have a throwing knife <laughs> i was also unsure why i was also unsure why ryan jumped to the conclusion that it was a pirate ship before he'd i just i, I actually really like that can stuff. i fight can i fight back on that yeah go for it i don't know much if you have ship, someone so. who's like on the brink of an anxiety breakdown i love that he jumps to pirates <laughs> like it might need maybe a little bit of lampshading but I, I, I like that out-of-control escalation of consequences that aren't actually there. I think I would have liked it lampshaded a little bit more, but I do like that idea. I do too, actually. I think what confused me is I didn't see it as like an, an irrational jump. I just assumed that he knew. We're talking over you, Rebecca. What do you think? <laughs> uh, no, no, I, I, I definitely agree. Um, I, I Going back to how the pirates were kind of like didn't realize he was like a stowaway. Um, I felt like there needed to be a little bit more confrontation between him and the pirates that he was a stowaway. Like I just didn't think that they would really like him sneaking aboard without them knowing. 
So maybe just, again, like there was really good tension when uh, Ryan's hiding in the barrel and the pirate comes down and he's like going to barrel to barrel and opening them and he's getting closer to Ryan's barrel and there's like a really good tense moment. So I don't know, like maybe like he gets discovered and there is some sort of confrontation and then the Kelpie appears and because the Kelpie's like the unified threat now that he fights with the pirate. I can see that working for sure. I, I had another thought too. So at the very beginning... When Ryan first realizes he is on a boat, it seems like it's a very big deal, all capital letters. He will throw up if he even sees water, and suddenly he's on the ocean. But then when he gets up on board and he does see the water, it comes off more as, like, kind of annoying that he's on the boat. And so, like, I mean, he starts out like, this is my worst nightmare, and then it goes to just kind of like, I guess I can deal with this. It's okay. Which made me wonder if Ryan is an unreliable narrator or if he's like a very melodramatic narrator where he's like, I'm in a barrel and I'm going to die. And then he gets up and he's like, okay, I can take care of this. Because I I just didn't feel like it was consistent. Yeah, and I'll, I'll add that when I started reading, I, I honestly thought this was like a middle grade book. The tone yeah. felt very young to me. Um, so I was expecting Ryan to be about 12 because, again, you know, being in a barrel and being loaded onto a ship. Um, so I was surprised when he revealed himself to be 19. So maybe his inner monologue feels a little a little bit juvenile. So, but yeah, I definitely noticed that too. And there's a disconnect between the way his age of 19 is handled with the other sailors. Because like, you know, historically, it's not at all uncommon for like 11-year-old boys. To be like, midshipmen. Yeah, exactly. So the fact that he's 19 and feels embarrassed that he's young doesn't jive with historical sailing at all. If he's 19, he's probably older than half the people on the ship. Yeah, you hit adult at 14, right? Although, again, this is fantasy. This is fantasy pirate right, so there age. Could be, so there could be, there could be, you know, some in-world exterminating, exterminating, extrapolating, extenuating, one of those words. You know, something that explains it, but. When you're, when you're, I don't know, per- personally, when you're selling a setting this early in a book, I like to have things make sense. We're out of time, but are there any final thoughts? I mean, we're all waiting for this, Kelpie. We're so excited for the horse. And I know that we're spoiling for a fight. He has knives and, like, chain shot and, like, we're ready. And when it actually comes up, we get, like, pages of description like pages of description, which are all really cool, but I kept wondering why no one had done anything. Like it's looking at them and they're looking at it and it doesn't make any moves. And the like, just because of how much time it takes to describe it, it just feels like everybody's staring at one another for like 10 minutes, which sounds like um, a Peter Jackson film, with people just staring off into the distance. But I mean, it didn't work quite for me in, in this particular setting. I mean, some Peter Jackson films were a little successful. I don't know. If I'm not saying that he's... I'm just saying that particular aspect. <laughs> anyway. Okay, awesome. Well, to this author, whoever you are, thanks for submitting. We really did enjoy reading your work. And Becca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me again. <laughs> of course. And book lovers out there, make sure you check out The Queen's Rising, The Queen's Resistance, and be sure to pre-order Sisters of Sword and Song. Do it, do it, do it. 